We've been in this series, is this on? Yep. We've been in this series entitled Faith Works, where we've been emphasizing the practicality of faith, of actually taking what we believe and putting it into, putting it into practice, because if you believe something, but you don't actually live as if this something is true, then it's not going to do you or anybody else any good. You might as well not even believe what it is that you say that you believe. And so today we're coming to something that is very practically significant, very relevant, because God in the text that we're going to be looking at today tells us the kind of family that he wants us to be, the kind of community that he wants us to be, at least in terms of our core actions and disposition toward people of all classes and cultures. This is so very relevant, um, but what we're going to be talking about here this morning. And uh, in fact, when we start thinking about what it is that God has in mind for us to be as a community, we will recognize very, very quickly that's easier said than done. And on occasion, that's just kind of how life is. I appreciate the honesty of this parent or these parents who posted this picture. Parenting was so much easier when I was raising my non-existent children hypothetically. It's one thing in theory to work out the gospel. It's another in practice to work out the gospel. And there's quite the challenge that's put before us. And as again, as we're going to see, the challenge is, is very, very high. But the good news is James, as he lays things out for us this morning, gives us motivation and he gives us specific practical wisdom on how we can live up to the high expectation God has placed upon us as a community of faith, as a family of God, at least in terms of showing no favoritism. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. The text this morning, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him uh, to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you do commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, by faith, same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. May God bless the redeemer's word. You may be seated. Now, 
James, unlike the Apostle Paul, does not break apart faith. He doesn't dissect faith as much as he simply shows us what faith looks like when it's moving. James assumes faith as he shows us what it looks like to live as if what we believe is true or when we live in such a way that we take our faith and live it out because we value it highly enough. I, I think of the story of the, the young man, the boy, who goes into the grocery store, buys some eggs for his mom, and as he's coming out, he trips, drops the bag, all the eggs break, and the adults gather around the boy to console him. One of the gentlemen there in the group takes out a quarter, gives it to the young man, and then he looks at the other people in the group, and he says, I care 25 cents worth. How about you? In the text, James is, a simp- is, is essentially, he's posing this question, is the gospel worth 25 cents to you? And if it is, then here's what you're going to make a very high priority in your life. Here's, here's the kind of community that you're going to look like when you and everyone else around you embraces the gospel fully. And he, and he tells us quite straightforwardly, do not show favoritism. You're going to live in a community. You're going to be the kind of person in community with others who does not show favoritism. Now, the question arises, what is favoritism exactly? Define this. And if you're into definitions, James gives us a really clear definition. He means by favoritism, discrimination. He says in verse 4, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Inside the Christian community, what the Bible teaches with great clarity in multiple ways is there should be no favoritism. There should be no discrimination between one class and another, one cultural group and another, one social group and another. There should be no discrimination. In fact, if there is the discrimination, James says, you become evil judges, judges with evil thoughts. And in the Greek, it carries the weight of judges who would take bribes. So James is saying anytime you show favoritism, you favor one group or the other or one class over the other, one culture over the other, here's what's happening. You are like an official taking a bribe. You are promoting injustice. You're perverting justice. This is a, a travesty that has to be avoided at all costs. And the early church saw this because the early church took so seriously this call to justice, fairness, equity, equality, that they recognized we're going to have to do, to do whatever we can to avoid this because that completely undermines the gospel. When you favor one group over the other, it's not just, well, that's bad. No, that cuts to the core of the gospel or undermining the gospel. Let me just kind of share with you in a practical way the conviction of the early church. You go to Acts chapter 6, and here's what you see going on. In, in the early church, for the first decade of church history, all Christians were essentially Jewish in terms of their culture. And you would think, well, that means it was a monolithic culture. You just had a bunch of Jews that became Christians. Everybody gets along. But the reality is within the Jewish community, there were Hebraic Jews, Jews who were, you know, more purists, who would speak Hebrew. And then there were the Hellenistic Jews, those who spoke Greek and they understood Greek and Greek was their heart language. So they were a little bit more multicultural and cosmopolitan. And you had two groups that were essentially sort of different from one another, one more comfortable with the culture around them, one a little bit more closed off perhaps or, or purist in their thinking. So there was tension. 
and they grated on one another's nerves. And, and one of the things that happened was this. They were, they were grating on each other because the people in the, the Hellenistic camp, the, the Greek-speaking Jews who become Christians, they thought that their people were getting ripped off, especially their widows were getting ripped off. They weren't being treated fairly. See, there was something called a, a common fund and uh, that people would give to this common fund. And out of that fund, it, people would take resources if they didn't have an appropriate income, uh, if, they, if they didn't have work. And typically, that would be the widows. They didn't have the, the husband or maybe the, the children who would provide for them, and they weren't employable. And so largely, it would be the widows that would be taking out of this benevolence fund. And the Hellenistic Jews said, hey, these Hebraic Jews are ripping us off. We're not getting our fair share of this. Now, the apostles did something about it. The people who were kind of overseeing the church in Jerusalem, they did something about it. And likely what they saw was nobody's doing this overtly. Nobody's being in your face about this. And there's probably, probably these Hebraic Christian Jews are not meeting in some smoke-filled back room saying, how can we rip off the Hellenistic Jewish widows if we give them 15% less? Is anybody going to notice? And there's plausible deniability. There's none of that going on. But you know how it happens in churches. This is what happens. One group complains, the other complains, and then there's a a counter-complaint and another counter-complaint and one group feels a little put off and another group feels a little put off and before long, you, you just kind of have a bit of a tangled mess. And so the apostles said, here's the deal. I just, look. There's not an us and a them when it comes to the kingdom of God. There's only us. And since there's only us, not us and them, we're going to be very aggressive in addressing this perceived injustice. So what they did is they got a whole group of people in charge of distributing the funds. They, they just, they got some men in particular set aside for this specific task. But what's really interesting here is that these apostles, and you see this more clearly in the Greek, the apostles all have Hebrew names. And the deacons that they chose, the servants they chose to distribute the benevolence fund, they all had Greek names. You see what's going on here? Somebody was distributing the funds. Who do you think that was naturally? Well, probably a bunch of Hebrews got together, or Hebrew Jews got together and said, let's just do this. The apostles said, not only are we going to try to be fair, we're going to empower this group that feels like they've been disempowered or they're on the outside, and we're going to let them distribute not just to their group, but they're going to distribute to the Hebraic Jewish widows and to the Hellenistic Jewish widows because we want to communicate it's not us or them, it's just us. We are so serious about this, we don't want there to even be the perception of inequity. Now, that's pretty aggressive. I wonder how those Hebrew-speaking Jews felt when they kind of got disempowered and another group got empowered. I wonder how they felt like being on the other side of the equation going, well, I hope we don't get ripped off like the Hellenistic Jewish widows felt like they were getting shortchanged. And that must have been kind of difficult to navigate, don't you think? I think it was probably a little bit difficult with this major exception. Back in the early church, it was understood. We have decision makers. 
And then we have implementers. The decision makers tell the implementers, here's what you're going to do. And then the implementers were responsible to the decision makers. And then everybody else just lived with the decision and the implementation. And that was that. And you couldn't like go, oh, well, if that's how it's going to be around here, we're going to the Hebrew speaking only church where they all wear yarmulkes. And then we're, no, we're going to go to the Greek speaking only church where nobody ever wears yarmulkes. And I was talking to Brett about this, how weird it is if somebody came into our congregation Wearing a yarmulke, we would notice, but we wouldn't tell them to leave. But when the yarmulke goes from the top of the head to the front of the head, all of a sudden it gets weird, doesn't it? Kind of crazy. But back in the day, they just said, here's how it's going to be. We're going to do it. We're going to be equitable. And that's just that. Why? Why were, when you are, when you're into justice, you got to be creative. You have to take it seriously. And one of the things that also becomes very apparent from the early church is this. If we're going to be a community of justice, simultaneously, there has to be mercy. Because if we're going to be balanced, if there's going to be equity, there's always, always give and take. Always somebody has to bend, somebody has to yield, somebody has to give in, somebody has to sacrifice in order for there to be equity. Uh, what, you can put up the next quote on the screen. When you understand justice rightly... You simultaneously recognize your own need for mercy. Now, we see that not just from the example of the early church. We see this in the book of James. James puts it like this in in chapter 2. He says, judgment, verse 13, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And James goes on and he talks about law-breaking, how we're all breakers of the law. And what he's communicating is, listen, we're all going to be judged and we're all judged by the same standard and we all need mercy, so you better be merciful because we're all lawbreakers. And since we're all lawbreakers, we need to give everybody else a break because we need a break too. If there's going to be balance, there has to be judgment and mercy, justice and mercy. There has to be equity and sacrifice. That's the kind of community that God is after. You better be merciful in, in addition to fair. Now, the question comes up, well, what does it mean to be merciful? Does that mean I'm like, I'm just going to be a nice guy and be sweethearted and wish people well and, uh, you know, maybe even be forgiving in my heart toward people? Well, that's probably included, but that's not enough because specifically in the New Testament, oftentimes the word mercy or being merciful carries with it an enormous amount of practical intervention weight. Here's what I mean. You go to the, to the Gospels, and there's an occasion when Jesus is walking by, and some blind men cry out to him, Son of David, have mercy on us. You know what they're saying? We're blind, we want to see. We know you have the power to, to intervene you know, medically, miraculously in our lives so that we're not like we are anymore, and so we want you to intervene so physically we are not as we once were. That's all carried in there when they say, be merciful to us. It's not just forgive us or give us a break. It's like we want for there to be physical difference in our lives in a practical way. You go to another passage where Jesus is telling this parable about a man who, who has a couple of servants. And this is Matthew chapter 18. There are a couple of servants and uh, one of the servants has a debt of 10,000 talents, which is like a lifetime of debt. The master forgives the debt. And when you forgive a debt, it's like you give somebody money. He gives them a practical chunk of change. Then the servant turns around and does not forgive another servant a much smaller debt. The master finds out about all this, and here's what he says 
in Matthew chapter 18, verse 33, shouldn't you have shown mercy or had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In this case, mercy is financial intervention. You go to the parable of the Good Samaritan, rather famous. Jesus tells a story about this Samaritan who sees a Jew down in the ditch. He gets off his, his donkey, gives the man transportation, gives him a place to live, gives him shelter, intervenes you know, medically, attends to the man's wounds, does all these things. And then Jesus says to the, law, the, 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 the lawyer, the expert in the law with whom he's talking, he says this, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And then the lawyer replies, obviously, the one who showed mercy to him. Mercy oftentimes means practical, economic, physical help that is in life given. Now, how do you think mercy is being used here in the book of James? Generally or specifically? Well, it's not hard to answer the question. You just look at the context. You go back to the end of chapter 1, which still comes right before chapter 2, and here's what you see. Last couple of verses, James writes this. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Then in chapter 2, verse 6, we read about how the poor should not be dishonored but, but honored. And then later he says, you know, around verse 14, listen, having faith but no deeds, that's basically pointless, it's worthless. And then he gives a practical example of mercy in the way that we've just been talking about mercy being an intervention to meet people's needs in practical, physical ways. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Here's the thing that is very clear in the book of James. If we are going to be the family that God wants us to be, it has to be a family, a community, without partiality, no favoritism whatsoever. And when there is favoritism, it has to be aggressively removed. It's not enough to just not play favorites. We have to do the opposite of playing favorites, which is justice, equity, and mercy. Making sure everything is fair and then sacrificially being willing to be sure that things are fair. Now, we can apply these in a whole host of ways, but let me tell you one of the things that has been on my mind lately, and I kind of had a couple of conversations last week that sort of confirmed this. We want to be fair to everybody. When we, when we first uh, started, you know, meeting again in person, uh, we had the no just masks, and then it's like, well, we'll have masks optional. And so people can wear masks. We have places where people feel more comfortable with masks in the back and some that, you know, if you don't want to wear a mask, okay, you're in the front. So it's mask optional. You can do whatever you want to do. That's great. We want to honor one another in those settings. But, but I've also discovered that there are some people that only want to be around people who are masked. That's how it is for a couple of reasons. One is just, you know, the medic, medical scientific concerns. Maybe that's their own age. Maybe they're taking care of aging people. And they're concerned and legitimately so. I learned recently from, not from CNN or Fox, in case you're wondering, oh, which one does he take? I listen to, I don't know, people who are doctors and, and uh, you know, hospital administrators. And the reality is we are most contagious in the first 48 hours before any symptoms are being displayed. I had a guy last night, I was at a, as a and I try to blend in because I want to be all things, all, thing, all people. Okay, I, I try to get it. Uh, but I had a man shake my hand and it's like, oh, you know, I don't generally shake hands and, 
and I'll fist bump or something like that. And he said, oh, well, don't worry about it. I would not shake your hand if I had any symptoms. And I was just thinking, that's irrelevant. If you, <laughs> you know, uh, you, you, you're, that makes me feel uncomfortable because you could be really, really contagious right now. But uh, okay, I'll just kind of run with that. Some people are, are very virus concerned. Some people also recognize that others who are not necessarily in that mass group um, don't necessarily get it or aren't, aren't as concerned. And, that, and I, that's okay too, really. I understand that. But we don't want to even implicitly favor one group over the other, do we? Remember in the early church, nobody's doing anything that's overt to favor one group over the other. But sometimes these things just sort of happen. And so if I knew there were people that wanted a mass-only service, we would be sure to do that. Even if that required sacrifice on my part or even if that required a little bit of give and take on the part of everybody here, right? I mean, honestly, if you knew there was something that we could adjust so as to make everybody comfortable, would you do that? Yes. For those of you at home... There was an overwhelming, yes, amen. They were jumping up and down, like, in all seriousness. Let us, we're still trying to make sure that things are as equitable as they can be, fair as they can be, and we'll make adjustments if we need to, even if that involves a little bit of personal sacrifice. You know why? Because the gospel demands a community that is fair and merciful. And we will do everything we can to be both of those things to all people. So I want to hear from you if it would make a difference, if you wanted to be in a mass-only service. But this isn't just about that. We, we want to be that kind of community because you know what that actually enables people to do? It enables people to be closer to one another. You say, really? You know, if we had, look, we already have a traditional service and a contemporary service, and then when we have a mass, then this, what are we going to do? Listen, the, the less favoritism there is in the family, it's always better for all the siblings. It's really true. When you play favorites of one over the other, it's hard for the kids to get along. I, I came across this statement from psychologist uh, Carol McBride. In healthy families, we encourage our children to be loving and close to each other. However, in narcissistic families, that is where typically where the parent has everything revolve around them, in narcissistic families, children are pitted against each other and taught competition. There is constant comparison on who is doing better and who is not. Some children are favored or seen as the golden child and others become the scapegoat for the parents' projected negative feelings. And get this, siblings in narcissistic families rarely grow up feeling emotionally connected to each other. You can't favor one person or one group over the other and then feel entirely connected. Now, there may be reasons, other reasons besides, you know, narcissism or or a favoritism within the family that causes siblings not to be close. But some of you, you're not close to a brother or sister or family. And part of the reason is there was favoritism. And I'm sorry. Uh, my parents really did try their best to never play favorites in our family. I remember my, my mom being asked one time, and I was there, do you ever play favorites with your children? She, she said, no. We always try to treat earnest and not earnest equally. So, uh, you know, if you're if you're... Wanting your kids to be close, you don't play favorites. And, and frankly, when it gets right down to it, when the church is what the church needs to be because the gospel has transformed us into the kind of community that we should be, a community of justice and mercy, 
the rest of the world has a passion or a thirst for that. Because don't you think that in this world right now there are people that said, you know, I just wish people were fair and merciful. I wish we just lived in a, in a, in a world where actually justice rolled down like waters and we were just this one big happy family. The gospel enables us to do this. And so we're going to close on this question. And the question is, okay, how do we put to death discrimination? That's a big question. I think it's a question a lot of people have. James gives us the answer. And when he gives us the answer, and it comes in different groups, it all has to do with Jesus in some respect or another. It, it, is a, it comes from a biblical worldview that is also Christ-centered. And if you're looking for the answer to how do we overcome discrimination, but without Christ at the center and without the Bible, I'm going to tell you there is no answer. There are some people that say, look, don't we just, shouldn't we just treat everybody equally because it's obvious? I mean, isn't it obvious we shouldn't show favoritism to everybody? Some people would say that, but I'm going to tell you it is not obvious to everybody. Go to India. There's a caste system. Everybody believes everybody should not be treated equally. Go to China. Go to Japan. There are unspoken caste systems there where we are not obviously all supposed to be treated equally. You go back in time to other cultures. Aristotle, pretty smart person, he said, obviously, some people are meant to be enslaved. Now, in our culture now, people go, well, obviously, everybody ought to be treated as equals. You know why it's obvious to people, even though they cannot articulate why that's obvious? Because America grew up in the Judeo-Christian worldview. We, we as a nation have our roots in the Bible and specifically in Christ. And if people don't always recognize the foundation, sometimes the building can still be erected, but eventually when the foundation is taken away, it will crumble. James lets us know in this text, you want to avoid discrimination, you want to be a, a community without favoritism where we are all valued equally to the point that we would willingly invest and sacrifice for the benefit of other people. You want to be in that kind of community? It only comes from one place, the gospel. That's it. Here's James' argument. How do we put to death discrimination? Number one, he says you've got to see people, others may devalue as lowly, as instead bearers of God's glorious image. Now, that doesn't come across real plainly in in James chapter 2, but when you combine it with chapter 3, absolutely it's obvious. He says, but you have insulted the poor. Now, that same idea of insulting comes in the next chapter when James writes, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. If you insult the poor, you're not seeing them as people who have the dignity of those who are created in the image of God. James actually brings up the image of God in a much more subtle way when he talks about, you've heard that it was said, you know, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't break those things. You know why it is that we don't commit murder in the Bible? The reason is because people are created in the image of God. That's why you can kill a squirrel but not a human being. Squirrels aren't made in the image of God. People are. Jesus picks up on this idea in the Sermon on the Mount And he says, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder. But I'm telling you, don't even call your brother a fool. You know why? Because they've been made in the image of God. You can murder somebody with your mouth. You can murder somebody in your mind. This is largely what James is getting at. It's not just wrong to insult the poor because they're poor. It's wrong to insult the poor because you don't do that to human beings. They've been made in the image of God. 
You want to put to death all of this, you know, discrimination and favoritism? We've got to get back to the conviction from which human rights and justice grew, which is that people are created in God's image. Number two, James says, you've got to see people whom others might devalue as disadvantaged, as instead advantaged in faith. Here's how he puts it in verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? This is just a simple fact that throughout history, the people who have most readily believed the gospel have been those who have been poor. Do you know why that is? Because when you're poor or poor in spirit, as it's put in, in, in Matthew, you're just straightforward poor, you've become accustomed to recognizing, I've got need. Um, if you recognize on a daily basis that you are trying to have daily bread, you're in a better position to recognize when the gospel comes to you saying, the bad news is you, you have a- absolute radical need. You cannot provide for yourself, but Jesus can. You've got to throw yourself completely on the utter grace of God. Oh, okay, I, I get that. I know how to do that. But in the upper class, you don't deal with that so much. And I would say on a world scale, I'm upper class. I don't think about my daily bread. If I need bread, I don't get bread. I go down to thundercloud and then I buy a sandwich and then I'll cut off some of the bread. Because daily bread's not an issue. I got, I got bread and most of us here, we've got bread. We've got insurance and jobs and homes and social security and all these expectations. When you're upper class, you don't think about need quite so much. And when you're middle class, the attitude is, I can take care of myself. I can do this. I can handle this. I I got this. And so when the gospel comes to somebody with a middle class spirit or an upper class spirit, hey, listen, you're you're a sinner and you need to radically be born all over again and you bring nothing to the table. It's all by the grace of God and you've got to throw yourself utterly on God's grace because you can't do anything for yourself. It's like, ah, that's kind of insulting. But throughout history, those who've been disadvantaged from the viewpoint of the world have had advantages in faith. That's just a fact. Now, I'm not saying that it's, if you're middle class or upper class or upper middle, that, that that's bad. No, I'm just saying the poor have the advantage of faith. James is just pointing out an historic fact. The third thing that James points our attention to is you've got to remember God's passionate concern for those who need mercy. Even if you forget it, don't forget God's passionate concern for those who need mercy. He puts it like this. This is not fuzzy and fluffy. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. I don't need to hang out on this very long, and I don't want to, not because it's painful, but because it's really, really clear. James just asks this question to us or has us ask a question to ourselves. Do I really think that God is not going to judge me or going to judge us if we are less merciful and less compassionate and less just than the rest of society that doesn't even believe that people are created in the image of God anymore? Do, do I, I really think that if I don't pay attention to those who need mercy, that God in those moments is somehow looking away, that he doesn't care and that I won't be held accountable? Just food for thought. There's another thing that James points out, and that is number four. And we're just talking about, do, do we really want to put discrimination to death? It gets back down to the gospel and God's concern. See yourself through the lens of the gospel. Back in the first chapter of James, James says something that is really interesting. It's provocative. He says something that is confusing to some people. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. Like, does that mean being proud of being poor? 
But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, like I should be ashamed of making money, because he will pass away like a wildflower. Do you know what this verse is actually doing? This, this is actually showing us the gospel at work. Here, here's what I mean. The gospel is you in yourself deserve rejection. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're on the other end of the chasm. We, we are separated from God by our sin. Because of our sin, we deserve rejection. The good news of the gospel is you can be saved. There can, the gap can be bridged. You can have a relationship with God. But, but the good news is not, hey, I can work this out and I can earn this and merit this. No, you're saved only by the grace of Jesus Christ, only by his merit and his grace. And so the moment you become a Christian, two things are true about you. From the moment you become a Christian, immediately, because Jesus lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, you believe that. From that moment on, in yourself, you have a low position. You're a sinner, deserving rejection. But at the same time, you have a high position because you have been accepted fully, once and for all, absolutely, totally, without reservation for all eternity. What James is driving at here is, is some very simple but profound analysis if you are poor, here's your you you have a you are low in position and high in position. You are you are low because you're a sinner, and you are high because you're accepted, adopted by God's grace. If you're rich or well to do, however you want to view yourself, if that's the case for you, if you have wealth, you are low in your position because you're a sinner. You deserve rejection. And at the same time, you are high in your position because you've been accepted, adopted by God in His grace. What's true of the person who's poor and a believer and a, and a person who's rich and a believer? They're actually the same. But Paul is, James is saying, listen, out in the world, you get disdain if you're poor. You would probably be better off to be focusing on the spiritual reality that you've been accepted, that you've been given a high position, that you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, that you've been raised up. And if you are rich, then you ought to be focusing rather on your low position that you are in the same boat with everybody else, that everything you have is a gift of God's grace. When people on this end of the spectrum and this end of the spectrum have the gospel and they see themselves appropriately in light of their position in the world and in light of the gospel, they get brought together like nothing else does bring people together. Because those who are poor are raised up by the gospel, they're lifted by the gospel, and those who are wealthy are humbled by the gospel. And that's why we commonly say, at the foot of the cross, the ground is even. The ground is flat. And you can tell a lot about a person's relationship with Jesus concerning where they are in, in the view of the world and how they will talk to themselves and talk to other people about themselves in light of the gospel. Let me give you a perfect illustration of this, and I am not endorsing candidates or anything. I just want to tell you, I met... Uh, Josh Schrader, who's running for mayor, last night. I'd never met him before. Uh, he introduced himself, and uh, and I kind of was a little bit sheepish, like, okay, I, I, like, like he assumed like I knew who he was or something. Or other people did. I said, I'm sorry, I don't know you. I haven't met you. Oh, I'm Josh Schrader. And somebody else said, yeah, he's the big shot. And immediately, Josh Schrader said, no, I am not a big shot at all, just like that. And I thought, okay, this guy's a believer. I had an opportunity to pray over him later on, and uh, he is a believer. He's actually deacon in his church and is an active member of the church and an active member of a small group, and he does love the Lord. And I had a ch chance to pray with him afterwards, 
And as I was praying over him, somebody asked me, so who are you? And I said, well, I'm just a pastor at Main Street Baptist Church. I'm not a big shot. When those who might be exalted humble themselves and those who might be humbled are exalted in Christ, the ground is flat. And some of us are going, well, that's kind of a bummer because I was really hoping hoping that God would favor me over these other people. And uh, the reality is just because God doesn't favor you over someone else doesn't mean that you are not highly favored. Because here's how it works. When, even though the ground at the foot of the cross is flat, the ground at the foot of the cross is high. You, it's, it, yes, we all have a low position, but in Christ we've all been seated in the heavenly realms. And the favor that is shown to you and to me equally just so happens to be the very favor that God showed his own son. He favors you and me just as highly as he favors the only begotten, which is just crazy when you think about it. And that's the gospel. It pushes us to number five. This really drives things home for me. You want to put to death discrimination, here it is. You've got to see the beauty of the son who became poor for you. It's kind of interesting where James uses this language Suppose a rich man walks in and then he says, and suppose a man who's poor also comes in wearing shabby clothes. You know that word shabby is translated vile in the King James. It's also translated dirty or filthy or repulsive, revolting. When we look down our noses at other people depending on their class or status or whatever the case is, we have forgotten that In God's eyes, apart from Jesus Christ, our own righteousness is filthy rags. We are shabby, revolting. And the reality is there is someone very important who stepped into your world and into my world, who stepped into the church, who came in wearing shabby clothes. He came in poor and was wrapped in shabby clothes and was placed in a shabby manger. And when you see this... When you see the one who is robed in glory, disrobing himself and putting on the shabby clothes, being rejected so we would be accepted, it kind of changes things a little bit. And it's not just, oh, moralistic. Well, look at Jesus. Look at how he was, be his way to. No, he became shabby so that I and, and so that you, so that we would not be. He He made himself disfavored so that when we came in, we didn't have to stand on the other side of the room. We could actually pull right up to the table and be seated next to God. When you see the beauty of the glorious one who made himself inglorious for you, it changes things because this is personal. And in our moments when we show favoritism of one person over another or one class over another or group over another, In those moments, it's like we have abandoned the gospel. It's like we're not seeing Jesus. And this is why Jesus is so important to see in everything. This is why James begins chapter 2 the way that he does. He doesn't just say, don't show favoritism. Here's what he says. As believers, what? In our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. In the final analysis, the reason that there would ever be discrimination is we've lost sight of Jesus. And so if you do feel like there's a spirit in you and you can't grade other people's papers and 
handle other people's business, but if there is something in you that is discriminatory, open your eyes, okay? Open your eyes and see Jesus. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, uh, we, we do love you and we thank you for the way in which through Christ you've shown favor to us. And uh, there is no reason, there's not a single reason that fits with the gospel at all where we would ever want to show favoritism of one person over another, one group over another, one culture over another. So, Lord, Lord forgive us those, those times, not just when we have not understood the situation appropriately, but we've not understood Jesus appropriately. We're not seeing him for who he is. So, Lord, help us as your family to be truly a place of equity and of mercy. Father, too, I pray that as we become the family you by the gospel create us to be, that the rest of the world would see this because what the world wants is justice and mercy. But oftentimes, apart from the gospel, people don't have a, they don't have a clue as to where to begin. And inevitably, it always breaks down. Always us and them. But in the gospel, it's only us, and it's not us raising ourselves above. It's us all meeting at the foot of the cross, and then and only then, by the grace of Jesus Christ, being lifted to be the family that you would have us to be. So, God, deepen our conviction concerning the gospel and the advance of the gospel, and deepen our capacities to actually live out in practical ways, the incredible justice and mercy that is on display in the cross. God, I don't know what else to ask. I just, I just pray, Lord, you would transform us, that we would, that the gospel would be real, so real, so tangible, we could feel it, touch it, taste it, smell it in our midst. Father, too, if there are any who have not yet acknowledged Jesus as Savior and Lord, the one who met justice for them mercifully, I pray, Lord, you would grant them the capacity to simply turn to you and say, God, I know I've sinned, I've fallen short, and I need your mercy because what I deserve is not mercy. That's why we call it mercy, because I don't deserve it. But I know that because of what Jesus did for me, his effort, his work, his accomplishment, because of that I know I can be saved. And so, God, right now I turn from myself and selfishness and even my own righteousness, and I trust in Christ and Christ alone. God, thank you for saving me because of what Jesus did and Jesus did alone. And I pray that that good news will not only ensure my eternity with you, but that it will transform me into a person who reflects your fairness and your mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.